It's good to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day, and we extend a very warm welcome to our visitors and our uh, old friends with us today, thankful uh, that the Lord has brought you here. And I invite you to continue with us in worship as we consider the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. And we'll consider near the end of the chapter, verses 60 through 66. But let us read from John 6, verse 60 through the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of God together. John chapter 6, verse 60, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Amen. Let's pray and seek God's help and His blessing as we come to the preaching of the Word. Let's unite our hearts and pray together. Father, thank You for the Lord's Day. We have already sung of glorious things. We have read glorious things in Your Word that teach us about our own sinfulness, that teach us our need for the greatness and the perfection of Christ who You would give for the life of the world. Father, we thank You for the refreshment of the truth. We so need to be washed regularly in Your Word. Father, we pray that as we come to the preaching of Your Word this morning, that we would be instructed in our minds, that we would be moved by Your Spirit in our affections, that our wills would be renewed to walk closely with our God. Father, cause each of Your people by Your Spirit to respond appropriately to each different passage and portion of Scripture. Lord, You have given us many things in Your Word. 
Many things which encourage us. Many things which warn us. This morning we consider one of those warnings with these disciples so-called walking away from the Lord. And we pray, Father, that You would give to Your people a sobriety about the seriousness of the calling to persevere in being a Christian. We pray that You would work in the hearts of unbelievers who have never truly come to Christ in their hearts. We pray that they would be fearful of the judgment to come. That they would be fearful of what it will be to face the Lord Jesus on Judgment Day without the covering of His grace. And we pray that all of us, every heart here this morning, young and old, that we would all find safety and protection in the blood of Christ. He is true food and true drink indeed for our souls. Come by Your Spirit, be our teacher, enlighten our understandings. Give us love for Christ in our hearts and a steadfastness in our commitment to Him by Your grace, the Lord being our helper. Draw near to us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come now this morning nearing the end of John chapter 6. This is a chapter in which the Lord has perhaps more than any other chapter of the Gospel of John has over and over freely offered Himself to sinners as the bread of life. This chapter highlights for us the freeness of Christ, the freeness of the Gospel, that even the vilest offender against the holiness of God is welcomed and beseeched by the Lord Jesus Christ that He too or she also may come and apply for grace that we may come to Him without money, without works, and without fear of being cast out. Over and over in this chapter, words have fallen from the lips of the Lord Jesus that are among the sweetest words in the entirety of Scripture. Words of life. Words of liberation. And yet, tragically, here at the end, maybe unexpectedly, we witness a heart-wrenching parting of ways from Christ. A rejection of Christ. And John highlights here at the close of this chapter that no matter how peaceable no matter how soothing the words of the Gospel are, no matter how loving Christ is in speaking to us the words of eternal life, John highlights here that sinners will find a way apart from the grace to take offense at those kind and soothing words. And that's not a testimony of failure on Christ's part, but rather a testimony to the poor state of sinners in their natural love of sin. That they can hear again and again after witnessing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they can hear sweet words 
Music to the sinner's ears. Come to Me. I am the bread that you need. I will raise you up at the last day if you will but come and feed upon Me. And yet sinners, apart from the work of the Spirit in their hearts, find reason to say this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Paul tells us that the word of the cross is a savor of life unto life unto those who are being saved, but it is a savor of death unto death to those who are perishing. And brothers and sisters, that's a hard, sobering, and tragic truth. It was for the Lord Jesus Himself who at the end of His ministry wept over Jerusalem saying, would that you would have known the things that make for peace, Jerusalem. And saying, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you, Jerusalem, were unwilling. And it's the tragedy of that very unwillingness that we're witnessing here at the end of John chapter 6. And so let's begin our exposition And then secondly, we'll turn to our doctrine and our application together. So, exposition. Let's work through the text together and consider what God is teaching us and saying to us here. Beginning in verse 60, John begins to wrap up and come to the end and conclude this discourse in verse 60 with these words. Therefore... Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And literally, who can understand it is who can listen to it? Who can hear it? And it's made clear in verse 66 that these are not merely the words of those who are open to the truth and who, who are just genuinely wrestling to understand But these are words that manifest a heart that is resolved not to listen anymore. Verse 66, from that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Now notice who John is speaking of here. In verses 41 and 52, every other time in this chapter when John has described this crowd as grumbling against his words or complaining or murmuring against his words, John has elsewhere referred to them simply as the Jews. But here his word of choice changes. And he says many of his disciples grumbled and turned back. Not referring to the twelve disciples, but disciples at large. These these are not His outspoken enemies, and these are more than just His casual hearers. These are people who would, would have considered themselves learners of Christ. That's what disciple means. A learner. A student. These are people who frequented His teaching. Some of them had had left and abandoned their former lives to follow and to enter into the school of Christ much the same way that the twelve did. And these, these disciples, not just the Jews who are already known to be His outspoken enemies, but these are turning back. And they're saying amongst themselves things 
Like now Jesus has finally crossed the line. We've been willing for a time to be patient towards Him and to endure some of His unorthodox antics. We, we turned away, turned a blind eye as it were with His unorthodox cleansing of the temple in chapter 2. We gave Him a pass when He spoke of, in John 5 of, his, the, of God as His unique Father. We showed Him patience, but this is too much. Claiming that He has come down to us from heaven, claiming that His flesh and blood are true food and true drink that will lead to eternal life. That's too much. And they're not just saying, notice, they're not just saying, you know what, they're not turning to their neighbor and saying, you know what, you guys can decide for yourself. I can understand why some people would be persuaded by Him, but I can't listen to this anymore. They are saying, who can listen to this? They comfort themselves the way sinners often do in the comfort of the majority. None of our leaders have followed Him. They all think He's nuts. And rightfully so, this is a bridge too far. No one in their right mind would submit to such absurdities. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 61. When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this. Notice, He didn't know about their complaints because He heard their complaints. Or because someone told Him He knew, John says, in Himself. He didn't need to be taught. Christ knows what is in man before a word is even on a man's tongue. He is the living Word that Hebrews 4 tells us about that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. My friend, if you're here, realize your thoughts that no one else knows are as audible words to Christ. He knows your whisperings. He knows who are His. He knows those who in their heart rejoice in the Gospel and rejoice in the Word of God. And He knows those who complain and who grumble and who kick against it. He knows what every sinner and every fool and every philosopher says in his heart against the teachings of Christ. When he knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Note, Christian, how sinners... This is very enlightening for us. Note how sinners will find offense even when there is no offense given. What has Christ done to them except spoken the truth to them? Has He hated them? Has He lied to them? Has He deceived them? Has He sought their harm? No. He has done nothing but sought to love this crowd and to do them good. Verse 63, He has spoken to them words that are spirit and words that are life. And if they had but sought out His meaning and His explanation, He would have gladly and willingly given it to them. But they will not. They are offended. The prejudice is on their side. 
they have become offended by love. And so verse 62, he says to them, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? Now, this could be taken, I think, probably more than two ways, but I think most likely one of two ways. He could be saying here, I'll give you both options. I I tend to favor the second. He could be saying, first of all, if what I have said to you thus far has offended you, I assure you I could tell you of things that would offend you much more. Namely, if this is what he means, he's saying, namely, if you're offended by the fact that I told you I came down from heaven... Imagine if I told you about the glory that I will receive still when I ascend back to heaven and sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if this is his meaning, then he's saying something very similar that he said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 12, when he said, if I have spoken to you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I were to tell you heavenly things? In other words, if you stumbled over this, what would you do if, if I told you and declared to you the, the entire mystery of God? Or secondly, and this is the position I think is more likely and that I take, he could be saying, you are offended now that I have said that I have come down from heaven because you did not witness it. But he's challenging them But what will be your opinion when you do see the Son of Man ascending to where he he was before? In other words, he's saying, okay, because you haven't seen me descend from heaven, because you didn't witness that, you think my testimony is false and you stumble at that. And he's saying, but you will see me ascend back into heaven and he's challenging them. Will that change your opinion? Will that satisfy you? Are you really unbelieving because I haven't furnished you the kind of proof you need to believe? Or are you unbelieving because of your bias against me? And he's saying to them, I think, even though you will see and hear proof that I have indeed raised from the dead and returned back to the glory of the Father, you will still even on that day find reason to take offense at my words. And I think that meaning better fits his next words here in verse 63. 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. He's saying to them here what he's been saying to them all along in this chapter. He's saying even though I declare to you spiritual things by the Spirit of God, and even though they are sweet things that offer you eternal life and salvation from your sin, unless the Spirit of God enlightens your soul and changes your heart, you will not believe. Matthew Henry says, Christ's Word and ordinances if they are attended by the Holy Spirit, are as food to a living man. But he says, Christ's word and ordinances, if they are not attended by the Holy Spirit, are as food 
to a dead man. He will not eat because he has no appetite for the things of God or the things of Christ. Isn't that a tragic testimony of the awful effects sin has had and that sin has wrought in our hearts? That even though the sinner can hear the story of Christ crucified and risen for the free justification and salvation of even the vilest sinner, if he would but believe, and even if the preacher begs with the sinner and pleads with the sinner and presses Christ upon the sinner's heart as much as he can, unless the Holy Spirit comes and presses Christ effectually into the heart, he will take offense and he will not believe. And then John comments, this is John's comment, he says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Though they took to themselves the name of disciple, right? they wore that badge, their real identity was not unknown by Christ. And notice, he didn't, it doesn't say that he knew at that moment who didn't believe. As though he merely discerned it from their actions and their words and their outward evidences. It says he knew from the beginning. Mark it. Hypocrites and apostates, no matter how well they play the part and no matter how well they fool us, long before they manifest their true colors in the world, in this life, Christ knows perfectly well their true colors. He knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He knew this from the beginning because He knew from eternity past all whom the Father had given to Him. Right? This is in, intimately connected to the doctrine of election that Christ has been opening up. Everything the Father does, chapter 5, the Son does likewise. And everything the Father knows, the Son knows likewise. And therefore, Christ knew from eternity past with perfect knowledge every single one who would come to Him because the Father had given Him or her to Christ and He knew every single one that the Father had not given. Verse 65, And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to him by My Father. That's the end of Jesus' public teaching in this chapter. Those are his final words. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He's not denying their culpability and their unbelief. He's not saying my Father is actively creating unbelief and rejection in the hearts of, of these people and that's why they can't come to me. But he's saying the only way the sinner will have a change of heart is if the Father grants it to them. Christian, coming to Christ is something, according to Jesus, that the Father gives to the sinner. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus used the phrase, unless the Father draws him, 
right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here he clarifies that that drawing is the Father giving that sinner something so that they are drawn. Namely, giving to the sinner grace. Giving to the sinner a new heart that now desires to come to Christ. That is ultimately the only hope that we have to come safely into the embrace of Christ is to be made willing by the effectual grace given by the Father and by the Spirit. Finally, verse 66 for our exposition. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. In other words, many at that point cut their losses with Christ and went back to their former lives. They went back to their houses. Back to the priorities that they knew before they had embarked on this journey, however short-lived it was, to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And in so doing, they packed up their things and left behind eternal life. Like Orpah in Ruth chapter 1. We'll read it next week, Lord willing. Ruth went with her mother-in-law, pled with her mother-in-law, I must go with you to the people of God. But you remember Orpah went back to her gods and refused to follow any further. That's what these disciples have done. Turning their backs on Christ and on eternal life and walking away. That brings us to our doctrine and our application this morning. I've combined doctrine and application, so we'll, we'll have both instruction doctrinally, but also application to the Christian life. And I have two things that I want to open up this morning from this sobering text. Two things that are important and vital for the Christian to realize in the Christian life and that are part of the Christian life. The first one is more lengthy. The second one is a bit briefer. Number one, doctrine and application. We are taught in this passage that the sad reality of the Christian life is to experience the heartbreak of rejection and apostasy. We are taught that a sad Part and reality in the Christian life is to experience the heartbreak of rejection and apostasy. Christian, that is part of the cross that we bear. The cross of watching those who once professed Christ and professed to love Christ leave off entirely of Christ. This was obviously our Lord's lot. This is not the only instance that we will see this in the Gospel of John. But it's not unique to the Lord. The Apostle John writes in 1 John, of those who have gone out from us because they never were of us. Paul speaks to Timothy of Demas who has abandoned me and the faith because he fell in love with this present world. Paul speaks in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 of his own weeping 
over those who presently now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of those who have drunk deeply of the rain of the means of grace and yet have turned their backs on Christ. Jesus says even to the twelve here, one of you will betray me. One of you is a devil. My brothers and sisters, I wish I could tell you that this, what we're seeing and reading here in John chapter 6, is a rare occasion and something that most Christians will never have to experience. But the fact is, the text says, many of His disciples turned back and walked with Him no more. And while this was not in the least a surprise to the Lord, it can be a shocking and disturbing experience for the Christian. Honestly, it's one thing to be hated and persecuted by the enemies of God's church. That, that's painful in its own way. But that's one thing. It is a whole nother level of bereavement when you find out and you hear that one who once sat at the table of the Lord with me now sits in the seat of scoffers. To hear, to hear that one that you once thought was a fellow soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ right alongside with you in the trenches has turned in his uniform and has enlisted with the enemy. Especially when they're your friend. Especially when they're a close confidant and a teacher, a counselor, an encourager. And Christian, how the devil, when this happens, seeks to have a field day in the hearts of genuine Christians. The devil knows, right? The devil has good theology. The devil knows he cannot persuade the elect of God to ultimately and finally leave off of Christ. But he does know that he can seriously use the hypocrisy of hypocrites to shake the genuine Christian. And suddenly, here you are, you're a a sincere believer... You have the Spirit of God and you hear that so-and-so has departed. And suddenly, doubts can descend upon the genuine believer much like turbulence to a plane and it can throw you into a tailspin of panic. As you think about the one who has departed from the faith and you remember all the prayer meetings, all the Bible studies, all the singing, all the gathering with the saints, all the words of encouragement that they gave to you. And you think, if, if they did all those things and have fallen away, then who is to say that I'm not next? 
I mean, they looked the part pretty convincingly. In fact, I thought they were doing better than me in certain areas. And suddenly, it can cause the Christian to look down into his heart and, or her heart and to ask themselves, is any of this even real? Because if they're fake, it calls everything into question. Is there even such a thing as a real Christian on earth? And of course, even the fact that you just asked yourself that question just exasperates your doubts. Because then you ask the question, can a sincere Christian ever ask such a thing? And doubt such a thing? My brothers and sisters, when and if apostasy happens, don't be prepared not to give the devil a playground in your heart. Because, listen to me, this sounds very counterintuitive, but it's true. While the devil means apostasy for evil, God means even apostasy within the ranks of His church for the good of His truly redeemed people. Christian, when and if apostasy happens, remember that the Word of God tells you beforehand to expect such a thing. It's not like we're experiencing something that Paul and the apostles didn't experience in the first century. Why do you think that John includes twice in this passage words like this? Jesus knew in Himself that they grumbled and complained against Him. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. Why does John include that? Well, one reason is that it's given to assure and stabilize Christians in the wake of people walking away from Christ, that while I might be shocked and we might be shocked, Christ is not. And it stabilizes us that just because there are counterfeits does not mean the real thing does not exist. Any more than the existence of fool's gold proves that gold doesn't exist. And so, Christian, remember that first. But secondly, even in the revealing of false professors in the church, Christ has a sanctifying purpose in it. Okay, so not only does He warn us about it beforehand, that's loving and kind, not only does He forewarn us, be prepared when this happens, but Actually, in the very thing itself, he has a sanctifying purpose for his people. And I'll give you two, just two ways this morning. The first one is this. Notice, and we'll look at this next, the section next week. Notice how even mass apostasy was an occasion of Christ strengthening the faith of his true disciples. Verse 67. That's why I wanted to read past our text because I'm going to reference it. In verse 67, after the, the disciples and the crowds have walked away from Him, Jesus now turns to His now little group, 
the twelve. And he says to them, do you also want to go away? Are you going to follow the masses? Are you going to let their unbelief be an occasion to spur you on to do the same thing? And Peter says, no, Lord. Because to whom else dare we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christ used even apostasy to strengthen the first principles of faith in His people. He uses it to cause His people to dig deep and probably to dig deeper than they've ever dug before to find those real gold nuggets of genuine faith that reside in my heart. And in that digging, He strengthens our faith by causing us to to say, no, Lord, I will not go the way of Judas. I will not go the way of the crowds and throw my lot in with the world because I know that You are Lord and You have the words of eternal life. That's the first sanctifying purpose is solidifying the genuineness of our faith. But there's a second sanctifying thing Christ intends in apostasy. Secondly, Christ uses apostasy to cultivate in our hearts the fear of God and to spur on His people in a more careful walk with God. The apostasy of others causes the Christian to feel his own weakness of heart. And to realize that if Christ does not hold me, I am undone here. And in so doing, it's a means that Christ uses to actually keep us from apostasy. Because it drives us to Christ. I mean, you think about all the things that God works good from out of evil. What an example of God working good from evil is that He can even turn and use apostasy to keep His people from apostasy. I'll give you an illustration. Let's say, most of you are probably familiar with this, when you're driving through very windy, I don't know what you'd call it, Sharp turns in terms of driving through windy hills and country. And driving through those things on the straightaways, you know, you might, you might be doing 55 or whatever, but almost every time you approach a curve that's coming up, you see those warning signs that say, for this one, slow down to 30, right? Or for this one, slow down to 15 because it's really, really tight. And most people think that, well, when it says 30, it really means 45, and when it says 15, it really means 30, right? They're a little bit over-conservative. And you think that until you come around the corner, and you come around the bend, and you see that the guardrail has been busted open, and a car, the car in front of you has flown through the guardrail off the cliff. When you see that driver in front of you and what happened to them, what does that do to your driving? 
Does it cause you to think arrogantly, I'm going to step on the gas because I can do better than they did? No. It makes you slow down and realize I need to be more careful in my driving or that could be me next time. That's the way, using that as an analogy, that's the way apostasy, and I would add to this, that's the way the warning passages about apostasy function in the heart and life of a genuine believer. It doesn't mean that apostasy really can happen to the elect of God, but let's not forget God is a God of means. He doesn't just preserve us apart from any means that he's appointed for our preservation. Take take this example. Jesus says to the twelve, there is one amongst you guys who is a devil. You know what effect I think that had on Peter and the other ten? I think it caused them to be more diligent in their attendance on the Word of Christ and more watchful against the beginnings of apostasy such that the very warning that one of them was a devil was the very thing that produced their response of persevering in faith. And so it is, Christian, that God works in us. Driving us to our knees in, with fresh urgency and with fresh fervency, praying, Father, When He shall come, we sing that hymn, with trumpet sound, may Father I then be in Him, or excuse me, in Him be found. It causes us to pray, Father, keep Your servant. Draw Your servant with Your cords of love to a more close and careful obedience to You. Keep me from growing weary in doing good. Let me not be found sleeping while my master is away, but renew my watchfulness. Renew the carefulness that I had at the beginning that I might not sin against you. That's how God uses apostasy in the life of His people. And Christian, let me just say this by way of just very brief, but pointed application is before we move on to our second point here. Christian, I plead with you, don't don't play fast and loose with God. Man looks on the outward part, the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I can know externally what's going on in your life because of what you tell me is going on in your life, but you know more than I know. But the Lord knows. And so, Christian, declare war immediately upon the first steps that can lead to apostasy. Don't entertain it. Don't coddle sin. Don't take pleasure in the company of sinners. But stick close to Christ and His Word because that is where the Christian is safe. Let's move on to number two. Doctrinal instruction and application number two. We are taught here, secondly, 
the difference between one who has genuinely bowed the knee to Christ and the fair-weather friend of Christ. We are taught the difference between one who has genuinely bowed the knee to Christ, knows the Lord, is sincerely saved, and the one who is merely a fair-weather friend of Christ. We know what a fair-weather friend is. When the weather's good, I'll go that way, be friends, but when things are hard, not so much. And again, I know I'm dipping into next week's section. Honestly, I intended to handle this whole passage as one, but just don't have the time or the space this morning. But notice the contrast between Peter's confession and the complaint of these so-called disciples. These are put in juxtaposition on purpose for us. Both the twelve, I should say the eleven, because Judas was a hypocrite, both the eleven and all of these others who are fake heard the same gracious words from Christ, and yet notice their different response. These so-called disciples hearing these words say this, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Meanwhile, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's a lesson we're supposed to see here. In other words, listen to me please, Christian and non-Christian. In other words, the genuineness of our faith is intimately related to our having a disposition of submission to the Word of Christ. And the flip side unbeliever or false professor or hypocrite is the evidence of a false faith is manifested by a dismissive attitude of the Word of Christ. Listen to me. Examine yourself. We ought not to think that we ourselves or anybody else is a genuine Christian simply because we like some things that Jesus said. But rather, we consider ourselves a true disciple and follower of Christ when we can say that His words All of His words are the words of eternal life. Even when, let's be honest, at first there are things that absolutely starve our flesh. The fair-weather friend of Christ has no problem cherry-picking from Christ's words. Christian, don't let that deceive you. Don't, Don't think that just because someone quoted this Bible verse or this word from Jesus must mean they're a genuine Christian. Unbelieving hypocrites like these crowds can say, I like those words from Christ because they agree with my opinion. Or those things are helpful because they make me feel good. I mean, remember back in earlier in John chapter 6, I didn't mark the, the verse reference, this very crowd 
the ones that are now walking away, proving themselves to be unbelievers, when they thought He was talking about physical bread for their stomachs, what did they say to Him? They said, Lord, give us this bread always. We like those words. If we're interpreting you correctly, yes, we we want more of this. But when the sayings got hard, and when the Word of Christ, my listener, suddenly doesn't give us what our flesh wants, and it is rather like spiritual sandpaper, hypocrites say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Let me tell you, you know what that translates into in our day? Those words, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It translates to this. I know it's in the Word of God, but... It's one thing to be ignorant of the Scriptures, right? We have to leave room for immaturity in the Christian life. And even in the maturity, there are things we remain ignorant of. But it's a whole nother thing to actually know what the Scriptures say and to then place yourself as judge over the Scriptures. Now, listen to me. I know that even genuine Christians can at first, right, we still have remaining corruption, we have pride. I know that even genuine Christians can at first put up defenses even against the Word of God, right? Because it's coming after me (laughs) and my little pet idol or whatever I'm trying to preserve and hold on to. And I know Christians can protest a bit. They can make up excuses. You know, I'm not really sure if it means that. I'm not sure if you're interpreting it right, whatever. But here's the difference. They eventually come around. Right? Eventually, and it usually doesn't take all that long, the Spirit of God humbles their pride and they acknowledge, okay, you know what? You're right. Jesus is Lord and His Word is my law. And His Word definitely says this. And therefore, I have to submit to it. That's one thing. But, listen to me. If in your heart of hearts you can actually look the Bible in the face and you can say, I know it says this, but I'm not going to submit to this, that is a very bad sign that for you, Jesus is not Lord, but you are Lord. And you are just a fair-weather friend to Christ whenever His words happen to suit you. And when they don't, you say, okay, I'm now taking control again. This is just one... I mean, we say this often. This is just one more reason why pulpits need to preach the whole counsel of God to their hearers. Because almost in every given mixed multitude, you have a mixed multitude of the sincere and the hypocrite. Everyone needs the whole counsel of God because even if the hypocrite doesn't get converted at least you're forcing them to face the fact that I either need to repent and become a Christian or I need to stop claiming that I'm a follower of Christ. Jesus knew that what He was going to say here would offend them and cause them to walk away. And He said it anyway. Because Jesus would prefer 
an audience of 11 true followers than than a massive multitude of those who were merely fair-weather friends. Christian, let let me encourage you in this as we close here. Just kind of bringing basic application from this principle. Let me encourage you, and this is something I have to encourage my own heart in. Whenever you find yourself either perplexed or confused or maybe even a slight bit disgruntled with what the Word of Christ says, and remember that was Peter's case often. Remember Jesus would say things and Peter would get up in arms. No, this can't be true. Shouldn't surprise us that genuine Christians can even become disgruntled. Whenever you are confused, perplexed, or disgruntled with what the Word of Christ says, always and every time let this assumption prevail on your heart and your mind. Namely, Christ is always right. And these are the words of eternal life. And my duty right now is to pray that Christ would bring my affections and mind into line with His words not to blot out His words for the sake of serving my own fancies. Take Peter as your example here. I have a strong suspicion that even Peter and the other ten here, they didn't understand this discourse completely either. That needs to not be missed. Just two chapters ago in chapter 4, Jesus says, you remember, to the, the twelve, He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And what, what do they think He means? Who gave Him lunch? You think of the synoptic Gospels, it takes a while before the, the, the pieces start to fall in place for the disciples. I don't think for a minute that Peter, hearing this discourse, had a full understanding that Jesus is talking about His own crucifixion in which He's going to give His flesh and His blood for the salvation of His people and that whoever believes in Him will have everlasting life. I don't think he understood that in all that detail. And yet, what did he know? He knew This is the Christ, the Son of God. That I cannot deny. That's what he says. He knew, I have seen enough and experienced enough to know if everything else is false, that is true. And therefore, Peter says, what he says, what Christ says, is my rule. My allegiance is to Him. Not to my intellect, not to my own understanding, not to the philosophers, not the opinion of the majority. My allegiance is to Christ and everything He says. And where there is misunderstanding of Christ's Word, I know that it's my fault in my thinking, not because of Christ not being clear. And where I take offense at the Word of Christ, I know it's not because Christ is not being loving, but it's because of my still sinful affections. And therefore, I will follow whatever He says. 
and I will go to Him for grace to change my own heart when my heart thinks it knows better. Christian, that, that's a test for your sincerity. Because that is the disposition of the heart that has been graciously changed by Christ. That is the disposition of one who has, the Spirit of God has grabbed a hold of and made a new creation. We live by a different lawgiver now. We have a different king now. It's not sin, and it's not our former master, the devil. We serve Christ. And what Christ says, that is the rule and the law for my life. And so Christian, let us give ourselves more carefully to the Word of our gracious King. Rejoice, Christian, if you have this morning such a heart. Because you once didn't have such a heart. You hated the Word of Christ. You, some of you in this room, this was me, you pretended to be a Christian even while you rejected 95% of what God's Word said. And you weren't even afraid of what that meant for you. And you look back on that and you look at yourself now and you realize, I wasn't saved. And God graciously opened my eyes that all of God's Word is true food and true drink for my soul and will lead me to eternal life. Christian, rejoice in that if you have such a heart. An unbeliever, if you lack such a heart, may you apply today, this moment, to Christ who can give you such a heart. Because He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts, we ask. Humble Your people. Father, thank You that You have given us such a heart. We pray for more of that heart to submit to Your Word more carefully and more fearfully in the fear of God. Lord, we pray for any in this room who are deceived and even self-deceived or maybe even self-aware that they, they are lying to themselves. We pray, Father, for their good Expose the real state of their heart to them. Make it known so that they may truly seek You while You may be found. Father, these are sobering things. Tragic things. And yet, You are not lacking in Your purpose in them. And we can trace even the golden thread through these dark things that so shake us at times. Draw near to us now, we pray, as we come to the Lord's table. May Your people all come with joy, with sobriety, with hearts that are humbled by Your holiness, hearts that are warmed by Your love. Help us, Father, we pray, to come sincerely, openly, without justification, without excuse, 
but also, Father, without doubt that Christ gave Himself for us. Bless Your people, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.